Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. Welcome to Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Okay, so we're going to set the stage here for this story with the tale of the 921 earthquake. So it was 1.47 a.m. on the 21st of September, 1999. Taiwan was hit by a massive earthquake. It measured 7.3 on the Richter scale. So in Taiwan, most people call this the Zhou-Er-E earthquake or the 921 earthquake. It became known that way. It was the strongest of the century for Taiwan. And by the time the last bodies were dragged from the rubble, the death toll would reach more than 2,400. And it would also leave more than 100,000 people homeless. Yes. Uh, one saving grace, though, was that the earthquake struck at night. Imagine if it hit during the day, all those kids at school. Right. Because 120 schools were destroyed or severely damaged. Mm. And another saving grace was that the epicenter was beneath Gigi, a small town about a dozen kilometers west of Sun Moon Lake in central Taiwan. So a relatively sparsely populated rural area. Yeah. If you go there today, there's uh, some ruins that they kept as a memorial, uh, a school that collapsed, and there's a museum dedicated to the earthquake. It was a major milestone in Taiwanese uh, history. And uh, as I noted, the strength in general was 7.3 on the Richter scale, but in Taipei, it was only about four. But still, even with that, some buildings in Taipei came down, including a 12-story hotel. Yes, I remember that. So citizens were uh, out in the streets. They'd fled their homes, and they're listening to reports of mass destruction, bridges and roads torn up, high-rise apartments collapsing. The aftershocks are rolling in one after another. But a great volunteer rescue team has already swung into action. Right. So we're talking about members of the Ziji organization. And uh, you have to forgive me if I don't pronounce that exactly correctly. But uh, right at that time, across the nation, members of the Ziji organization sprang to work, setting up relief centers, distributing emergency supplies, handing out money, food, medical supplies. And Siji sent a lot of personnel to go help with uh, both rescue and relief efforts. It's interesting to note that the Taiwanese authorities themselves would get sort of a mixed assessment on their reaction to the earthquake and their relief efforts. But Taiwan's non-governmental organizations would shine for the most part. And the most impressive of these NGOs was Siji. Their response was superb, not just the after the quake struck, but in rebuilding the devastated region. They mobilized nearly 200,000 volunteers and uh, enormous amounts of uh, money. And they built temporary housing for the homeless, good quality housing too. And they also built uh, schools. So this remarkable relief effort was the work of the Ziji Foundation. So Ziji, or its full name in uh, English would be the Buddhist Compassion Relief Ziji Foundation. This was founded back in 1966 by a charismatic Buddhist nun, the Master Zhenyan. In Chinese, Ziji literally means compassion and relief. 
So the aims of the movement are humanitarian for the most part, to alleviate suffering, to help the poor, but they also try to teach ethics to the rich and the poor alike. And Siji is unusual for a religious movement in the respect that it has from the public in Taiwan, from Taiwanese politicians and the media. With more than five million members worldwide, and that number might even be higher than that, uh, those numbers are from a while back, as well as tens of thousands of full-time volunteers, it's the largest lay Buddhist organization in the contemporary Chinese religious world. Okay, uh, by lay, you mean the regular followers of the religion. So in other words, not the clergy, ordinary people rather than monks and nuns. Yeah, this uh, lay aspect is is a pretty key element of the Tsuji story. So traditionally, Chinese Buddhism was largely about monasteries and the renunciation of worldly matters, shaving your head, putting on the robe, all of that. You know, you 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 left home and you became a, a nun or a monk, chanting in mountain monasteries. Right, you're away from everyday mm-hmm. life. But Master Zhenyan has transformed traditional Chinese Buddhism. She's made it more human, more rooted in the here and now. You know, focused on on the living and not uh, just dead saints or what have you. And also its lay members are the foundation of the organization rather than clergy. Yes. And her personal story, the master's story, is is fascinating. Yes, absolutely. Master Jenyan was born on the 14th of May, 1937, in the small coastal town of Qingshui in central Taiwan. So she's born to a poor family in a poor neighborhood, a house with an earthen floor, no running water. And her name was Jin Yun. Uh, when she was 11 months old, she was offered for adoption to a paternal uncle. And um, people may not know this, but the practice of giving uh, one of your kids to one of your siblings was really not that unusual at that time. That's right. Quite common. Uh, She was the fifth child, the third girl. And since her uncle uh, was childless, the aunt having suffered uh, miscarriages, she was offered to uh, his family and adopted. So these new parents, also poor, uh, the father did odd odd jobs, uh, the mother did household chores, which were time consuming because... Uh, you know, you had to collect firewood and fetching water. These these things would take time. So Master Zhenyan being born in 1937, she's roughly 84 years old now. That means she was old enough to remember the tail end of World War II, like 1944, 1945, right? When there was heavy bombing of Taiwan. Yes. Among her early childhood memories were the air raids, uh, you know, the violence of war death and injury. And she did uh, six years of schooling. And that might have not been all that smooth if you think about it, right? You've got the interruption of the switch from Japanese rule to sudden nationalist Chinese rule. So she did two years of Japanese schooling and four under nationalist rule. And uh, that was the end of her formal education. Uh, Mm. She devoted herself to the family, uh, which after the war, moved to the nearby town of uh, Fongyuan. And uh, the family fortunes changed. The father running several theaters, uh, Taiwan opera and movies. Uh, She helped with the family business, doing bookkeeping, selling tickets, preparing snacks, and household chores, uh, taking care of kids. Because after she was adopted, her new mum had four children. And um, from all accounts, she was not especially interested in religion as a kid. But there was an incident when she was about 15, which would be roughly 1952. 
Yeah, uh, her mother became very ill, and uh, Jin Yun prayed to Guanyin, the goddess of mercy, to help her mum. She offered to exchange 12 years of her life and to become a vegetarian if her mother's illness was cured. So the story goes that at this time, Jin Yun had a recurring dream in which Guanyin helped her mother. Jin Yun's mother did recover completely without uh, the need for some risky operation, and... Jinyun kept her vow to become a Buddhist vegetarian and, of course, later would devote herself to Buddhism. Vows to the gods for help and vows kept. Mm. It's one of the reasons there are so many temples in Taiwan. Uh, for example, my wife's grandfather, a farmer, was gored by an ox. He besieged one of the Taoist uh, gods for help. He survived and he kept his promise to build a temple. Wow, gored by an ox. Doesn't sound like fun. So, um, yeah, the story continues that eight years later in 1960, Jin Yun's father had a stroke at the office, sadly. She called a car to take him home, but he lost consciousness on arrival and he died two days later. Uh, she was told that uh, maybe her father would have survived if she hadn't moved him. That's, um, I don't That's know a why. devastating thing to tell someone. Yeah, I don't know why they would mention that, but... Jin Yun was obviously shocked by the sudden death of her father at just 51 years old, left bereaved. She's got tons of questions about the, the meaning of life. Mm, uh, she decided to become a Buddhist nun. And uh, that year, she secretly left home and went to a small nunnery in Taipei. Three days later, her mother found her and back home they went. But she ran away again a year later with a nun she had befriended and this time somewhere more remote to the East Coast. And they're wandering around from temple to temple. A year later, her mother found her, but she could not convince the daughter to return. So at this time, Jin Yuan settled down at a temple in Hualien. And we have to remember that at this time, the East Coast in general, Hualien, was still very, very remote. It wasn't until 1979 that it was connected by rail. And we're talking about a slow single rail track, so remote. Before that time, travel options to get to Hualien were an overnight ferry from Geelong. Uh, you could do a day's travel over the central mountains or the cross island highway. That's uh, quite a trek. Or a rather vertigo-inducing coastal road journey that... Uh, is, is to this day kind of spooky. The road runs alongside cliffs and is, is not an easy way to get to somewhere. But being in the back of beyond had its advantages. Uh, it meant more religious freedom away from uh, the government authorities and uh, religious authorities. Uh, for example, Jin Yun shaved her own head to formally renounce lay life uh, to become a nun. But the proper way to do that was to study, right, for a year or two under the tutelage of a senior qualified monk. Exactly. Uh, to obtain uh, formal clerical status, you needed to uh, get formal recognition from a, a Buddhist authority. Uh, but luckily, she uh, found a shortcut. She had a fortuitous meeting with a, uh, a greatly respected Buddhist master, and he agreed to be her uh, tonsure master to uh, ordain her. And it was Master Yun Shun who gave Jin Yun her new name, Zhen Yen. It means something we're not quite sure, but like, like disciplined master. Yeah. So Zhen Yen studied Buddhist literature by herself, uh, built up a small group of devotees, 
uh, did craft work to uh, earn money. And the idea to found a Buddhist charity gradually took root. And there were two influences here. Um, one was meeting Catholic nuns who kind of chided her that Buddhists did little to help society. They were like, Christians build schools, but uh, what do Buddhists do? And uh, I guess at that time, they kind of had a point. She was mm -hmm. also saddened at seeing one in particular, one very poor person refused hospital treatment because they lacked money. Um, it's a, it's a, one of the origin stories of the group. Uh, the person passed away instead of being able to be treated just because they couldn't afford it. So in 1966, Zen Yuan founded the Buddhist Compassion Merit Society, or Tsuchi. Humble beginnings and slow growth in the first decade. The organization just had a group of six disciples, I think uh, 30 members, mostly housewives, and they saved money for medical costs for poor people. And they would save every time they went out, uh, they'd put half a NT in a bamboo container. So that's uh, 15 NT a month, I think. So uh, after a dozen years in 1978, although the movement is still local and small, saving pennies, Zheng Yan announced a project to build a large new hospital. Amazing. Um, so why would she decide to start with a massive one? Uh, with the resources she has, why not just start with a small one? Religious competition and need, I think. There were several small ones run by Christian missions, but no large hospital in Hualien. More amazing than the ambition was the success in, in raising money for the hospital. Uh, no, she had enough for the land to start building, at least. And the groundbreaking ceremony took place in February 1983. But a, a couple of weeks after that, she gets some really bad news. A government notice. Sorry to inform you that the site is needed for military purposes and has been confiscated. Ouch. So this is 1983. We are still technically in martial law era Taiwan. And this was a time that, well, if the military said they wanted something, they, they kind of got it. Um, so what were the military purposes cited for uh, confiscating the land? Secret. <laughs> but it would later come to light that the Air Force were uh, going to build tunnels at the base of uh, the mountains there for their planes, and they didn't want any buildings nearby. When the government had approved the hospital, this fact, being a secret, uh, was unknown. Right. This is a crushing blow for Zen Yuan. Years of hard work and the donations of thousands of people. She couldn't sleep or eat for several days, uh, was afraid to break the bad news to her followers. But the goodwill she'd built up with uh, government leaders paid off. Uh, a month later, the Minister of Interior, he found a new site. He had visited uh, Zheng Yan in 1980, I think, and been impressed. You know, meeting her face to face seemed to um, really um, impress people. So the Minister of Interior helped her find a new site, one near mm -hmm. the town's new railway station. And they had a second groundbreaking ceremony on April 24th, 1984. That would be 14 months after the original one, and it was attended by none other than Li Denghui, who was then the governor of Taiwan province. Li offered to rent the land to Tsuji for a token 1NT. 1NT, uh, so basically free, okay. Yeah, but you'll be surprised. 
Master Zhenyan politely declined the offer. She wanted to buy it and to pay a market price. So they've got documents saying you can have this land, but they don't have enough money to build the hospital at this point. But fortune shines. Uh, a wealthy Japanese real estate developer offered the extraordinary sum of $200 million. And that's not NT dollars. No, American, 200 million US dollars. He was a devout Buddhist who'd grown up in Hualien and had a great fondness for the town and Taiwan. So the Zichi members were overjoyed. The problem of fundraising had been solved in a single stroke. Okay, but you're going to be surprised to hear that. Zheng Yan again turned down the donation, saying that the hospital should be built with the gifts of thousands of individual Taiwanese because this would create a broad and strong foundation with the donors feeling a sense of identity with the hospital. And in, in a later interview, she said, the goodness of one person is different to that of 10 million people. I hoped to build a hospital that people in Taiwan would care about. I would have taken the money. I, I, yeah, it's quite a bit of money to turn down, but, but I also see her point. Um, mm -hmm. It would have been kind of beholden to this one donor and uh, donors like that always uh, have, will have a tendency to, to like dictate terms and different things mm -hmm. like that. Yes. So uh, members uh, and membership had grown uh, to 60,000 at this point, in large part from publicity around the hospital. The members went on a huge fundraising effort, donating, asking for donations, working second jobs, uh, holding events. Uh, there were over 200 rich donors giving more than a million NT each, and then going down to street vendors uh, and all the way down to lepers, wow. lepers at a sanatorium in Taipei County. Uh, some of them donated their life savings, uh, you know, coins which had been put away since the end of World War II. So they raise enough money and the building is nearing completion. This is a very admirable project, um, but there must have been some doubts as to whether, you know, a group of Buddhist housewives essentially could run a large modern hospital. And that would be a challenge not just for securing donations, but also for hiring doctors, you know, specialists, surgeons, all of that. And as we said earlier, while Alien was not only poor, but also kind of in the middle of nowhere at this point. Yes, it was connected to Taipei by a railway, but it's a slow one. It's far away from research centers. Uh, there are no really good schools for the kids of doctors and stuff. And of course, being where it was located, the salaries there are lower. The year before the opening, they advertised for doctors and there were no takers. Mm. So they had to go knocking on doors quite desperately. But as we've seen so far, uh, Master Junyun is a charismatic woman with a knack for making things happen. So come opening day, I assume they've rounded up doctors and things are going to be okay. Opening day, August 17th, 1986. Beautiful new hospital, a five-story building with 250 beds, four departments. Uh, any doctors? Two dentists, somewhat reluctant dentists, encouraged by their department at uh, NTU, but, Taiwan University. Yeah. But, but no doctors? No doctors. Wow. <laughs> no doctors. Uh, eventually, uh, NTU, Taiwan's most prestigious university, uh, they would come to the rescue. Uh, they rather bizarrely gave uh, the Hualien posting for their, uh, for their doctors overseas status, uh, the same as Saudi Arabia, to which it sent doctors on uh, 
two-year assignments. Okay, so overseas posting status would have meant a, a higher salary. And that's interesting. Saudi Arabia and Taiwan had, clo- or the Republic of China, had close ties at that time. Saudi Arabia was a diplomatic ally, and both countries were staunchly anti-communist. Taiwan got its oil from Saudi Arabia, and Taiwan was helping Saudi Arabia with various developmental assistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this uh, anti-hardship uh, posting to uh, Hualien uh, came with the promotion afterwards. Nice. So they were able to get some doctors, though temporary ones. So they're getting doctors from uh, NTU, which, as you noted, is Taiwan's most prestigious university and uh, university hospital, right? And these mm-hmm. people that graduate from there, they've got the degree that is you know, going to open any door for a, a brilliant career. So these are very intelligent doctors, but they're kind of often lacking that human touch that a, a country doctor would have with, you know, more rural people. Yeah, and uh, it was a problem in those early days. But the breakthrough came two years after the opening when a group of five young doctors from NTU suddenly chose to go to the hospital to work. They were looking for something less commercial and a more compassionate style of medicine, and others would follow. Very kind, but um, staffing problems did remain for quite a while, both with doctors and nurses. So the decision was made by Master Zhenyan to set up her own nursing school. And this would be the first private nursing school in Taiwan. It opened in 1989 with 107 students. Tuition was free for those who agreed to later work at the hospital, which is a pretty good deal. And despite various obstacles, Zhenyan also managed to set up a medical research center in 1992 and then a medical school in 1994. A stunning achievement. Well, achievements. Right. Uh, and just the start, uh, larger hospitals were opened elsewhere. And Saji expanded overseas. The first international aid was in 1991 to Bangladesh and also China, which was you know, quite controversial. Indonesia, um, also a bit of an issue because uh, there had been some history of anti-Chinese violence in the past. And then you have South Africa as well that they were helping out in. When the 2008 Sichuan earthquake hit, Saji was the first foreign uh, group to provide assistance. Yeah, uh, in Taiwan and overseas, Sichi doesn't just do attention-grabbing disaster aid relief, but also long-term development, schools and hospitals. So most of these are handed over to local governments. It rebuilt 52 schools in the area affected by the 1999 earthquake in Taiwan uh, within three years and gave them at no charge to local authorities. And they don't do any uh, missionary work. In fact, some cases they've helped rebuild mosques and churches. That is correct. So I actually had uh, two encounters with Siji back in 1995 when the Kobe earthquake happened. They were there handing out tents and blankets and uh, stuff. I was a, a volunteer helping with something the time and, and it was amazing. They were there very early on in the in the disaster. And then when Typhoon Morakot hit Taiwan, there was a, a very, very horrific uh, incident where a mudslide completely covered a village and pretty much everyone in the village was killed and a nearby village was completely destroyed. Uh, Siji helped to rebuild entire new villages in a different location for these uh, survivors. The, the houses are like the two-story houses with a small yard 
card in front of it. And because they recognized that these people were either Catholic or Protestant originally, they built a Catholic church and a Protestant church for the uh, native people that they had rehoused. They brought in uh, a priest and they brought in a pastor and figured out how to build mm -hmm. churches. I mean, can you imagine uh, an American church building a Hindu temple or no, or, no, or um, yeah, it's just it's it's quite impressive. So let's take a quick look at the philosophy of Tsuji, and probably that would help us understand, you know, the, the reasons for its incredible success. Okay. Uh, Tsuji has benefited by its focus on practical human matters, uh, improving the here and now. And by being focused on lay members rather than the clergy, it's social rather than religious uh, motivations that drive it. And um, great leadership, trustworthy, and she strikes a, a balance between authority and uh, humanity, practicality and idealism. Yeah, the members uh, that I've met as well, uh, they, they tell me they feel they're doing something worthwhile, so they have a sense of a achievement and pride. And there's a relative degree of equality. The organization has different levels, but there is, you know, basic egalitarianism. They wear a uniform. That is, if you've actually committed to the group, it's not that easy to get the uniform. You have to commit for a while and, you know, they, they want to be sure that you're really in for the long haul. And I visited the Kaohsiung Center and it's a, it's a gorgeous wooden building that, uh, you know, looks rather expensive. And I was taken behind back and met this man in his 70s, I believe, and he was sorting plastic bottles. And they told me, oh, by the way, this is the person who donated many millions of US dollars to buy this land. And there he was just picking through recycling with everybody else. Wow, fantastic. And Tsuchi's success comes partly from it being the only uh, Buddhist movement to use Taiwanese rather than uh, Mandarin Chinese. You know. Hmm. During the period of martial law, there was an official Buddhist organization that controlled pretty much everything, a registration of temples and clergy. Most of the leaders were mainlanders and... Uh, Chinese was the language used, unintelligible to uh, the majority of Taiwanese. Uh, it was a monopoly and unresponsive to the Taiwanese majority and uh, also unconcerned with contemporary human affairs. Uh, Qi has a, a nice balance of uh, this local uh, localization, but also a universalist uh, ideology, you know, helping the world. Right. And uh, they've also told me on several occasions that they have no problem working with people uh, people of any religion or creed or atheists, for that matter. It doesn't matter to them. But th they do have, uh, I guess you could call it the Ten Commandments for Tsuji uh, people, uh, which they recommend people should follow. And um, they do have a bit of a local flavor. So we've got a prohibition against killing. That's pretty mm -hmm. universal. Ste no stealing. Sexual misconduct is, is wrong. False speech or lying is not good. Drinking alcohol is to Ouch. be avoided. <laughs> Sorry, John. Smoking or chewing betel nut is uh, strongly uh, advised to uh, be refrained from. Gambling is a no-no, and that includes playing the lottery and involvement in the stock market, which is uh, going to be a bit of a mm -hmm. hard pill for some to swallow. You are supposed to be filial, or uh, what's, a, what's a way of explaining that? Faithful to your parents, right? Yes, respect the parents. Yeah. You should not break traffic laws. That's one of their rules. And also, once you put that uniform on, you are not allowed to participate in political demonstrations or anti-government activities or, or basically in politics in general. 
Yeah, uh, the rules are quite health-focused for local problems, uh, smoking and betel nut. That's that's very Taiwanese. Right. I mean, chewing betel nut, uh, thankfully, it's on the decline, but uh, no, enormous uh, numbers of people die from mouth and throat cancer because of that habit. And the other one that struck me as interesting is following traffic rules. They tell people that to be moral, you need to follow the traffic rules. Mm -hmm. That 10th rule, staying out of politics, seems a bit limiting, but... Uh, on reflection, I think it makes good sense. There is a problem with temples and local politicians in Taiwan, often a, a corrupt connection between them. So all in all, uh, I'm comfortable with saying I'm not a fan personally of organized religion, but Siji does a pretty good job. And the philosophy of a sort of humanistic Buddhism and the way they implement it is, is kind of hard to find fault with. My thoughts too. I always ask the question, compared to what? Uh, there might be aspects that don't appeal, but if we look around at the comparisons, then Siji uh, stands out. It's uh, clean, uh, a well-run charity with donations getting to the needy. Right. And you, you said compared to what? So I've got an example of compared to what? So the years before the 921 earthquake, um, religious freedom had blossomed. Taiwan had come out of martial law, right? But there was a plague of religious scandals. Do you remember the Song Li case? Yeah. Cult leader claimed to have divine powers. He could magically travel through time and space, heal people. Yeah. yeah he 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 snared some pretty high-level politicians in Taiwan that I, I won't mention names, but um, the proof yeah. that uh, Song Shili offered of his, uh, I guess, divinity were photographs showing himself flying over the Great Wall of China, um, sitting Buddha-like with a starburst halo of light emanating from his head. And he sold these holy pictures to his followers and gave his followers, you know, his divine blessings for a price. And by the time the cops moved in, he'd fleeced people of about 7 million US dollars. Um, wow. Interestingly, later, like in 2003 or so, the high court overturned the judgment against him, uh, citing freedom of religion. But I mean, these are photographs that are, if, if you look at them now, they're obviously crudely photoshopped, put it that way. And uh, still available for sale? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess so. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the Song Chi Lee case looks relatively sane compared to uh, another example just uh, a couple of years after. The Taiwan UFO cult. So March 1998, 150 followers and uh, and the leader, the great prophet Chen, were assembled in Texas to await God and his fleet of flying saucers, yes, UFOs. So according to Chen, God, uh, who was talking to him through a diamond-encrusted gold ring, was coming down to Earth, preparing an exodus to another planet. <laughs> Man, all the things that are, uh, are interesting about that. Why Texas? Why a diamond-encrusted yeah. gold ring? It's just like, wow. So these, these are extreme cases, but even mainline religious groups have some rather dubious practices, especially when it comes to fundraising and the use of donations. Yep. So the Suchi Foundation really stands out. Uh, the conduct of its leader over many decades, the followers, the projects they've handled from emergency aid to good long-term projects, transparent use of funds, 
and little spent on bureaucracy. They also have a uh, like a science and tech division that I was introduced to. Uh, they oh. gave me a, a vest when I was visiting them that was made out of plastic bottles. So they strung out the plastic into fibers and turned it into a vest that is one of the warmest things I've ever worn. And they use those for, uh, you know, charity work in places that are cold. They also have developed some shoes that no nail can puncture so that the volunteers don't hurt their feet. They've got these mm -hmm. plastic beds that are perfect for uh, after after floods or after typhoons and they're they're they've got a whole like you know R&D division that's developing new things for charity which is um yeah very impressive excellent i raised my uh, glass of tea of a uh, tea yes, <laughs> correct <laughs> all right that's going to have to do it for today this has been for most of files i'm Eric Michael Smith i'm John Ross bye bye